Hello out there. Welcome to episode 145 of Love That Album Podcast. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon network of music podcasts. Morris speaking here. Thanks for joining me. I've spoken a bit on the podcast and plenty in the Facebook group for the show about my love of the Melbourne music scene, something local music fans have always taken a lot of pride in. Over the years, we've lost a lot of venues here, but it always seems that new ones have opened up. There's never been a shortage of bands to take to their stages. There's always been a very healthy roots music scene in particular here, and one band that walked that line of combining folk blues and rock exceptionally well from the mid-80s through to the late 90s. That band was the Warner Brothers, who had to change their name for the rest of their original run to Overnight Jones. More about that later. I'm wrapped that I have the two guitarists and songwriters for the band, Dan Warner and James Stewart, joining me for this episode. We spoke a couple of nights back and they told me stories of the reality of being a fiercely independent band. They told stories of band bookers, producers, radio programmers, and a very David and Goliath story of an American conglomerate versus a band without a record deal. Oh, and we also discussed the actual music. That is what we're here for. I hope that the uninitiated among you are fans by the end of the show. Dan and James reveal two very exciting announcements by the end. Please stay tuned all the way through. I have to stress here that both gents have done a ton of other great musical activities outside of the Warner Brothers, but we focus on that band for the most part and the albums that they recorded over the 90s. If you live in Melbourne, this will be a great time capsule and a great memory jogger. If not, I'm sure you'll get something out of this chat to describe our local music scene and just to appreciate some of our hometown musical heroes. So for now, we'll go to Joanne giving you the contact details for the show, then go straight into my conversation with Dan and James. I'll return to tell you what's coming up for next month's program. You're listening to Love That Album 145. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. James Arthur Josie's He's kinda thin and he's six feet something If this face is one you know Make sure he gives his mama a ring Please phone Welcome back to episode 145 of Love That Album Podcast, and I'm very, very excited to have a couple of Melbourne musicians, great songwriters who I've admired for a long, 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 long time. So really, really happy to have on the show with me, Dan Warner and James Stewart from the Warner Brothers. Welcome to the shows, gents. Hello, Morris. Hey, you going, Morris? All the better for having your presence on the program, I can tell you. We'll see about that. <laughs> oh, no, is this going to be the show? I'm going to regret that I've booked. Never mind. 
<laughs> Dan, we first met, well, we first started speaking several years back when I saw you busking with Dave Evans outside of Parliament Station in the Melbourne CBD. I was amazed to see you guys doing your thing and I think at that time I'd just recently bought Fall From The Sky. I'd asked you what prompted you to busk and I think you said something like, well, why not get paid to practice? I also know that the late, great Ross Hannaford also busked outside Melbourne City Library quite regularly. Had you always busked prior to joining up as a duo with James pre-Warner Brothers? No, not really. I sort of got strong-armed into it by Dave Evans years ago. It came about because in between bands, after the Warner Brothers broke up and I wasn't doing much musically, I ended up playing live the soundtrack to the silent movie, The Sentimental Bloke. I was a world tour. On that tour, I met Dave Evans and roomed with Dave Evans. And it's sort of wherever we were in the world, after a gig, we'd walk out with their instruments and sort of sing for our supper, you know, sing for free beers or whatever. We just really enjoyed doing it. So we just, it was partly because we were reminiscing about those days. But also for me, you know, in my other life, I work as a contractor. So in between contracts, it was a good way to subsidise my income a little bit. When people actually carried cash with them, it's not its not much use anymore. It's pretty much died a horrible death. You know, since tap and go technology and the pandemic, no one has cash. So I think those days are over. Yeah, I, I, it did help me practice and it helped me help my voice a lot. It was just fun getting out of bed early and playing, you know. You say that that was about the time that Dave got you to do that when you were doing the cinema. That, that would have been like, what, is that mid-90s or something like that? No, it's more mid-2000s. So it would have been around 2005, 2006, I reckon, that we started doing that. And I just, you know, I didn't do it all the time because, you know, if, I, if I'm working on a contract, I can't do it. But in those weeks between contracts i loved it it just really struck me that with your busking and the segment that you did for many years on the jvg radio method on triple r you you really are a walking jukebox i mean you probably have hundreds or thousands of songs in your arsenal this is a question i guess i'll I'll aim at both of you i mean you often hear songwriters who want to do primarily their own material and who could blame them with the occasional cover but why are covers an equally important part of your performing dna I have to come clean and say I'm not the human jukebox that Daniel is. Daniel's granted with a memory for lyrics, which is just about unsurpassed. Sadly, my savant memory function is numbers, (laughs) not lyrics. And I have to be honest. The number of times that Dan has looked at me strangely when I'm trying to sing one of my own songs and I'm busily singing the second verse for the second time or cutting straight to the bridge. I've seen a couple of covers, but I don't have that memory that Dan has got for them. But the whole thing about, you know, when you say part of your performing DNA, I think that interpreting stuff is part of finding your own thing. Playing a song and, you know, I've learnt this and then playing it as faithfully to the original, I don't think that's quite the same as going, I fucking dig this song and I'm going to smash a version of it out. That's how we got together, really, Morris, is because Stewie and I realised that we liked playing the same covers before we'd written our own song, so we found a way of playing together through playing covers. What were you bonding over in those early days? I was more a Neil Young guy, but we lo- we both loved 
Dylan, but we also liked Australian stuff that we did. I remember doing dingoes and Clapton, but Stewie was always pushing stuff at me. That was another thing that I, that I really enjoyed about playing with James. My music taste was more sort of straight-laced than his, and he was always pushing stuff at me like Little Feet and Hank Williams. I remember he gave me a Hank Williams tape. That was sort of pulling me more towards the cool country stuff. I was the youngest in the family, and our family had always just had records turning non-stop, and it was a bit of a classic because Dan would be, and he'd reel off a Dylan song, and I'd go, I'd sort of think, yeah, I know that. I know the title. How does it go? Didn't know what any of the Dylan songs are called. But he'd start playing and go, yeah, 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 I know that. And I was always sort of pretty good at just near enough's good enough playing. So Dan would knew the songs, and I could tag along. But also, Morris, you know, the reason why I'm employed in bands, the reason why I started being employed in bands, because I'm not much of a guitar player, but I was the only bloke who could remember the lyrics. Yeah. So that's how I got all my jobs. And it's still kind of the case, you know. That's, that's my strength. I'm not a great musician as such, but I remember chord progressions that I remember lyrics. He called and said we're leaving It's got way too out of hand He said we're moving up the country Where my old man's on the land He said I'll ride or I'll call you Where my crop's coming on He said mate just do us a favour Let's go back to the beginning of the Warner Brothers days and I'm sort of aiming this show as much at people outside of Melbourne and overseas who may not be familiar with you as much as people who may remember you so you guys got started I think in the late 80s a few years ago I spoke with Chris Wilson and I asked him to paint a picture as he saw it of the Melbourne blues scene at the time or at least a scene that he felt were like his peers I'm going to throw that to you as well the albums that you recorded at least start off in a folk rock vein Americana flavoured material who were you guys playing with that you considered as part of your scene I mean were you doing gigs say with Things of Stone and Wood or Wild Pumpkins at Midnight I know that you guys at some stage would have played with weddings parties anything and titters we, we always looked to people a bit, who, are, who are a bit older than us we played actually with those rockabilly bands right Stewie yep. we were playing with the Crummy Cowboys we more came out of the, of the harder country scene didn't we James like Boogie Two Shoes our contemporaries I guess were Checkerboard Lounge the Pumpkins were more or our contemporaries than things to stone and wood, to be honest. Working class Ringos. Yeah, working class Ringos. The other thing is that it wasn't till we'd really been playing for about four or five years that we kind of made any effort to kind of join the... I don't know what you call it, the indie scene in a way, because we tended to run our own gigs as much as we could. We'd sort of find a pub that had a room and we'd go, well, you know, we've got a PA and we can bring like probably 100 people who drink a fair bit. Um, <laughs> what do you reckon? And so it was a kind of a shock to us when we went to releasing our first record. And I remember having a discussion with Jim Carden, our drummer, him saying, you know, I want to play less for more money. And I said, well, mate, what's going to happen is we're going to be playing more for heaps less money. And that's what it was because, you know, you'd play the tote or the punters or somewhere like that and you'd get a hundred bucks. We'd kind of got used to getting you know, four or five hundred bucks. We lived completely outside of the scene for our first five, six, seven years because we would find pubs that weren't on the circuit, right, Stu? For instance, the Albion Inn in Smith Street, Collingwood, no one else played there, but we had the back room there and a couple of other rockabilly bands played there, but we 
had the back room there for two years. And we had a following. We just sort of do an apprenticeship, I guess, but we didn't need to be part of a team. We were sort of ran our own race, right, Stu? Yeah, and it went off. So we didn't feel like we were missing out on anything. And so when it came to sort of releasing our record, and we were kind of, I won't say stunned, but, you know, it was a bit of an eye-opener for us. All these bands that were kind of getting press and stuff, like the amount of money they were playing for, it was like, what? So, yeah, that was the kind of odd thing. when We didn't specifically have contemporaries, as it were, you know. Other bands we were mates with, they tended to be bluesier bands. I read, for instance, on Dan's website that one of the bands that you played with, which I saw all the time, absolutely adored, were the Paramount Trio. And I sort of thought, well, yes, it sort of could work, but it did sort of seem a, a bit of an odd pairing. Were you guys regular gig buddies? No, they played at the Albion, and Warren was a prickly character. I was sort of a, a dead keen rockabilly fan. He was in the straight eights for years. So, you know, I was a bit of an admirer of, of his. But um, yeah, there weren't really many bands that we toured with them or blah, blah, blah in that sort of period. It was a bit of a hodgepodge, really. Because I remember, Morris, for instance, when we launched Talking In Your Sleep, we, we launched it at the ESPY and we had never played there before. There was a bit of argy-bargy. We didn't have any management. We managed ourselves pretty much and we didn't have an agent. You know, I think Stewie probably booked the gig with a bit of argy-bargy saying, like, mate, we'll fill it, don't worry. Mate, this went absolutely crazy. Like, they were beating the doors down to get in there. Wow. We got 500 payers. And I remember, the, I remember the people going, who the hell are these blokes? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? We work part of the scene as such. But by the time you released Talking In Your Sleep, you'd already been playing around for three years. More than three years. But like, we like five years. And they had no idea. Because we didn't play those pubs. As I said, we'd play these pubs like the Albion Inn and make them our own. And they weren't on the circuit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't get press. We didn't get publicity. We didn't even court people. That wasn't what we were doing it for. We were just sort of getting into the play and the music and we had a rollicking good time, I <laughs> think. <laughs> we were just making a living out of music. That's what that's what James and I were doing. We're making a living yeah. out of them. A rollicking good time is a fairly quaint and polite way of putting it. You can be impolite about it on this show. I don't mind. <laughs> we drank like utter maniacs. And as much as you could in Melbourne in 1987, 1988, we lived a pretty rock and roll lifestyle. The Hell's Angels really liked us. I remember we played Broadford when we were kids. And I remember I remember getting on the stage there. Like We were young. And it was a big stage for us. Played there about 10 years later. And I remember just... We're kicking off Ball Bearing, who was the kind of MC of the whole concert had what looked to be a quart-sized Jack Daniels bottle, which he was swigging merrily from. And I saw him hand it to Daniel, and I thought, I know these blokes a little bit better than he does. I doubt that's just Jack Daniels. Daniel takes a big swig out of it, and I sort of wandered over, and Ball Bearing kind of offered it to me, and I thought, oh, yeah, took a big swig out of it. It sent my entire mouth numb for the entire gig. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see any lyrics for that gig. I sort of went, oh. (laughs) (laughs) We were at it pretty hard. Just coming back to the venues that you played around town, according to Dan's website, he says, you know, you played a whole roster of venues that it's bringing back my younger days, bringing back my youth. Well, the Prince Patrick, which is sadly not running as a band venue. The Great Britain, which I know you played for years, Dan, as yep. Dan and Al as well. The Punners Club, 
well, you mentioned the ESPY, the Barleycorn Hotel and the Corner Hotel. We were the first band asked to play at the Puns Club. When Rob and Rick bought it, and it was called the Mooney Valley Hotel, and we'd been playing at what was called the, the Or- G-Bung Polo Club. The Auburn. The Auburn. And we had some manic nights there, one which nearly involved a punch-up with the management. Tell us a story. Tell us a story. I remember this. Well, they wanted to get rid of us because a new manager had come in, and these young blokes playing rowdy rock and roll wasn't what he saw for the – he was thinking jazz bands. So he tried to jib us out of money. I can't remember the fine details, but it turned into an ugly scene, and that was about the end of us playing at the G-Bone Polar Club. But right at the time, Rob and Rick bought the Mooney Valley Hotel in Brunswick Street, which at that time, Brunswick Street, that would have been, what do you reckon, Dan? End of 86. Yeah. Probably had about three cafes in it. Had the Black we're, Cat. We're still at old old northern suburb street. There's not much happening. Yeah, and they bought that place. We weren't shrinking violets. <laughs> <laughs> And if a pub tried to rein us in, we'd just simply say, oh, we'll go somewhere else. And right. they'd sort of laugh. Morris, one of our big residencies was, remember the Riverside Inn on Punt Road? Yes, I didn't go there, but I do remember it, yes. We ran the upstairs room there like a fiefdom on a Friday night. And Eddie, who ran the place, told us, that's it. We are restricting you to six jugs for the rider. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we drank 19 jugs last week. <laughs> Bob, about... Um our money for tonight. That's right. Uh, $200, and you boys drank $300 worth of beer. And I said, no, nah, mate, the, the deal was you take the bar, we get the door, and we drink as much beer as we can. And he goes, you can't have that much beer. And I said, that's all right, we'll just go somewhere else. And he sort of looked at me because he knew how much money we were making. And he looked at me and he goes, what? I said, no, we'll just get another gig somewhere else. Don't worry about it. What, you're just going to fuck off? I said, yeah. And he goes, and then he just waved his hand in my face and said, drink as much beer as you like. (laughs) (laughs) Which they weren't expecting from musicians with no management and no agent. But we, as James said, we weren't shrinking violets and and we knew what we were worth. As much we knew what we were worth is I loved a Barney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the simple um, fact that, you know, you could say to someone, no, no, fuck, we'll just go somewhere else. They'd be like, what? <laughs> we had an expression in the band that we attached to James. It was called a fucking Jesus, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Stewie got into a Barney with someone, he'd go, the first thing he said was, fucking Jesus, mate. Look here. <laughs> I had a power pop trio called The Shambles, and I could have used you on a couple of nights. I'm still banned from two pubs in Sydney Road. <laughs> <laughs> so you reckon the bouncers have like a photo of you on their lanyard and say, yeah, this guy, troublemaker. Um, it's like a gig band, Morris. It's not, it's not a band as a patron. It's like a band from playing there, right, James? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, not banned from walking in. Okay. No, no. Right. No, but you're not playing here. Let's talk a little bit about the music, because that's primarily what this podcast should be about, is about the music. So I want to go through a few individual songs and experiences with various albums, but just talking broadly across the albums, so they're Talking in Your Sleep, My Private Train, and I Spoke Gas. In my mind, what I loved about it is, you know, you show your songwriting to be focused on catchy melodic hooks and personal story-based lyrics. It could be something descriptive like Rainbow Suit, which I want to come back to, or Red Hat. 
or stories of relationships that have taken a dark turn and I definitely want to talk a lot about those. None of that is unique necessarily in songwriting but your spin always seemed to tell like a, a great short story in the great Australian tradition you know people like you know what Mick Thomas are doing or what Paul Kelly does. I wanted to know how do you gents both approach your lyric writing? I mean are you often inspired because you've read a great book you read a great story um, you've suffered from a broken heart you've looked at an object and thought right I'm going to do a still life and song or is it other songwriters for me it's all those things inspiration can come from anywhere I'm not like James I think James's songwriting is more organic than mine I, I struggle with mine a bit more than him but uh I'm one of those people who, if I have an idea, I'll write it down. I always write down my ideas, whatever I have them, if I'm pissed or whatever, I'm, whatever, whatever a state I am. So I've got like, I've literally got folders and folders and folders of lyrical ideas and same with musical ideas. I just do snapshots of musical ideas. Not many of my songs are written to some sort of system. So the inspiration can come from anywhere. Sometimes I've heard a bit of conversation on the bus or sometimes it's been, yeah, I'm an avid reader, Morris, so it could be anything. But my songwriting is is always trying to marry, and the the reason why it takes me a long time is I'm always trying to marry the uh, lyrical idea with the musical idea. So I, I find that really painstaking but not many of my songs sort of flow i remember i remember stewie's lyric book was beautiful book of these complete lyrics looked like they'd been written straight out james is it my turn yeah sure (laughs) (laughs) Um, i think my songwriting is kind of notional through the warner brothers the sort of early period my songs would kind of be kind of not fully formed but the original as said notion or the opening stanza line would kind of come with a melody that's incredible but that kind of wore off i was talking to cal walker about it and i said i think there's a thing called your songvery which is it's kind of like an ovary and it's only got so many songs in it my whole songwriting thing kind of changed over the years mm-hmm. um as i said originally they kind of came out they were just extruded out the lyrics and the melody came as one for a while there i got more into writing by meter like i'd have a good idea for a line and i'd kind of work on that line to get the feel of it kind of happening mm-hmm. and then once i had that i'd then start to extend the whole idea based on that might be a 13 syllable line so alliteration's always been something which is strong you know catches my ear yes i was fascinated when i was little the fact that a lot of dylan songs the rhymes felt accidental so to me that was something that using the combination of a turn of phrase and the rhythmic feel of the you know syllabic construction of a line is what makes something really grab. It's not just the story. I mean, often they sound like slices of life rather than necessarily a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. So, for instance, "Stuck in Melbourne," which is a really good starting point, I guess, was stuff I want to ask you about. But "Stuck in Melbourne" is not so much like a, a short story or a short movie or whatever, but it does sound to me like a slice of life. It's a mood, and yet it does convey where this character is. You refer to the hair and the hairbrush reminding yeah. him of his departed girlfriend and Caroline Chisholm being lonely indicating no money in the wallet. Baby, 
yeah. Well, I mean, that's a perfect example. That song, if you listen to the very first line, he packed his things and he threw them in his EJ. It sets the meter from the, the kind of the golden rules of, like, I did a bit of stringing for magazines and you have crusty old editors going, mate, first paragraph, I want what, I want where, I want why, I want how. After that, it's yours. And it was interesting to me because when the first like kind of rudely said that to me, I was like, yeah, fuck, of course, like a song. Set it up and then you could rock out. And so Stark and Melbourne's a prize example of that, where you throw out that first thing that makes you go, oh, and then you rush through the gap with the rest of the song. I guess a lot of the information that you want to know is in that first verse, isn't it? Yeah, it opens that sense of wonder. To me, that's what really great songs are. You think Angel from Montgomery, a bloke singing I'm an old woman. You just go, huh? But it's also like the first two lines of my song, Burning, is basically the song. When Bernie came back from the war, he married his best friend's girl. That's basically the song. Exactly. I did want to talk about that as well very, very shortly. You have grabbed our interests right from the word go. And another song, which once again we'll get to when we're talking about, I suppose, gas, is the opening line of Big as the Moon. He said, I love you. She burst into tears. I think (laughs) you guys do a great line in first lines for songs. He said I love you And she just burst into tears He was nothing but a savage fool Who'd had too many beers He was just a lazy bastard Who only thought about himself And she had a heart big as the moon That gets a lot of people that one play that more often there you go I've started something here Um, (laughs) so uh, uh, some of the other songs I really really love of Talking in Your Sleep Brunswick Street Girl which sort of made me think of as a Dylan song structurally you know no chorus that seems to be another thing off a few of the songs off that album she struck me as quite nice she served me coffee once or twice I fell in love with that Brunswick Street I guess I like the way she said The colour's real But I wasn't born with colours Continental, which just... And I've been listening to a lot of Mike Nesmith and the First National Band recently, and I, mm. I was wondering whether that was an influence on you as well. Him and Joanne, I pay particular attention to. My wife's name is Joanne. Well, I guess another Nesmith connection there. But these wonderful slices of life, even as you musically change, I'm not going to use that word evolve because that implies you weren't in a good place to begin with, but as you musically change over the albums, but it seems like the way you want to tell stories still seems to be consistent, still interests you. And even, as I said at the start of the chat, Dan, the first album of your solo stuff that I got was Fall Into the Sky, probably about the time that we met. And Mm. once again, you're still doing these great slices of life there as well. Musically, vastly different. But yeah, you really know how to paint a picture of where a character is. For one or two lines, you think, right, I know this bloke. I know the scenario that they're in. I think James and I are both people who are just interested. We're interested people. You know, like the one thing, if you, if you ask me about James Stewart, one thing I say, he's interested in stuff. Hmm. He's interested in life, people, not just people, everything, you know. So I think that sort of keeps you 
you know, you're, you're not that you're looking for stuff, but I think, you know, it just being generally interested in people and open to people and open to stories, open to, you know, that's sometimes you're lucky that you hit on a, yeah, a nice opening phrase or a nice opening conceit for a song. Well, that's my most recent album, Fall Into the Sky. I actually really like that record. I think, I think my songwriting got better on that record and set me up for the next one. Which you're recording now, right? Yes. But you also, you know, I think, you know, songwriting to me is also a confidence thing. I don't know if it's time for, for you, James, but like, because I was always behind Stewie when we started in the band, for whatever reason. I, you know, I, I wasn't writing songs in the early days, as not nearly as many. So I always felt I was a year or two behind James at the start. So it took me longer, I think, to learn to write better songs. You know, I, I wrote a lot of shit songs in the early days. So unfortunately, some of them ended up on records. That's what it is. That's fine. You know, now I feel like I've sort of... I've, I've improved. That's kind of interesting to hear that. Uh, as a piece of self-criticism, you know, Daniel says he's, I actually feel like I've kind of dried up a bit. Like I still have the same feeling when something starts. But when I made the crack about, you know, the song very, I've written piles of short stories lately, but there's something that has seemed to have, I don't know, broken in my songwriting thing. So I don't write anywhere near as many songs as I used to. But my kind of problem has always been actually, musical because I'm fucking hopelessly undisciplined musically and you know I have to confess never actually that interested in musical theory and so as each year went on it became more and more apparent that my limitations in my theoretical knowledge about music kind of meant that my songs are borderline ditties you say that like it's a bad thing well the songs are easy to remember because they're pretty simple most of them <laughs> simple is a good thing the best songs are simple songs. yeah yeah but I always wish I'd got a little bit further ahead of it than the point where my interest conked out completely in learning anything more about music but anyway. I'd sort of also put to you guys that a lot of what makes a song work is in its arrangement. I could probably sort of list off half a dozen songs that I thought at one stage I thought oh that's shit and then I heard oh there's a different version. Oh wow they do so much better with that and you might be saying right well your, your songs are simple. Like Dan I don't see that as a problem. I see that as a plus but also the arrangements are exciting and I was going to come to this a little bit later on but I just want to say uh, for instance the opening song of Ice Bait Gas Red Hat which it's a song about just well you saw a red hat and I thought it looked good on you and it is it's a great character study lyrically but just musically it's exciting it's a ball terror as you know, the expression that we like to use here <laughs> Sorry, girl, today. Not more than a stone's throw away. She had a big black coat and a red hat, too. And I pictured that red hat on you. Yeah, and the record company didn't want us to record it at all. It was bizarre. The heartbreaking story that Morris, because the record company was trying to get rid of us and we convinced them we just want to record three songs and we could show you that we progressed and that Red Hat was a big live song too. Like the, the audiences loved it. So we recorded that, uh, Almost Autumn Days and Henty Stomp. 
gave them those three songs and they said, no, nah, we're not. This is shit. No, 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 no. Hang on. That's not entirely true, Daniel. That's how I remember it. No, they didn't say anything. That's when the period of silence began, when we eventually drove up to Sydney and went, oh, what are you doing? Well, for me, that's the same thing. It's like, how can you not be excited by that? What Morris is saying is like, this is exciting music. Yeah, yeah. How can your record label not say, yeah, let's great. Let's, this is a single. Let's go for it. Certainly to my ears, going with what else was popular at the time, I mean, you know, everyone sort of talks about, you know, the 90s as the big era of grunge and all that sort of thing. But it seemed like there was a fairly healthy melodic pop, power pop. Not that I call that power pop, but it's certainly, you know, really strong melodic hooky pop. And there was room for that. So the company that you're talking about, so that was the Mercury offshoot, wasn't it? I did Mercury, yep. Well, yeah, phonogram. Talking directly to what you're saying there, Morris, right when we were recording Ice Bay Gas, the Lemonheads released their version of um, Smarge's Tom Morgan's Outdoor Type. Yes. I reckon I had six different people say to me, I love that single of yours. If you listen to Evan Dando, I sound a lot like him. Always had a roof above me, always paid the rent And I never set foot inside a tent I couldn't build a fire to save my life I lied about being the outdoor type We weren't completely offbeat there was music just like us that was selling, but somehow we weren't meshing. It was you telling the band bookers at the pubs to go fuck themselves, James. <laughs> word, word had gotten around. That's what happened. It wasn't just bookers at pubs. It was also, uh, <laughs> it was also record company executives, Morris. <laughs> oh, I've got a combination right now of complete and total admiration for you, and yet I'm banging my head on the table over here. So many stories about being on tour. Like There was one, I remember me and, me and Stewie having basically a fist fight on the side of a stage at a Paul Kelly support. We never supported him again. <laughs> <laughs> the national publicity manager for um, Phonogram drinking with us at the uh, Hamster, <laughs> known as the Hamster, and her raving about head over heels and me at the table with my head in my hands and her going, what? I said, oh, I'm fucking sick of that fucking song. Uh-oh. I just feel like we we're on a fucking treadmill, you know? And she just went nuts at me. You're an idiot. You've got no blah, 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 and on and on and on. In fact, Morris, we performed that song on the Today Show, Channel 9 in the morning, mm. with, you know, Wilkins presenting it. I'm sorry. We'd literally been up all night drinking with, who's that band? Well, this other 90s band. We'd been staying at the Hamster, actually, Stewie, and I had no sleep. I was drunk. We obviously just hated the song. We're also going, yeah, fuck this song again. It's kind of an important moment. You're on morning TV. and I must have reeked of alcohol. I must have just stunk. It sounds to me like the one thing that you guys didn't get a chance to do was throw television sets out of hotel windows because you were getting through everything else. No, no, no. We would have been taking them downstairs and saying, is there a porn shop around here? (laughs) (laughs) I went. Head over hills into a rose I went Head over hills into a rose Then she left again She just disappeared one day Her note just read that she had enough And there was nothing I could say 
I want to come to that second album, My Private Train. There's so much I want to sort of bring up here, but actually, before we talk about that album and the song that you hate the most off it, about that time, and I, I know you've probably told this story God knows how many times, but there'll be people listening to this who may be hearing this for the first time. So about the time you recorded My Private Train for Phonogram, you had to change your name to The Overnight Jones because Time Warner came and knocking. So... Give us a bit of a background behind that. We didn't record it for Phonogram to start with. We made, that in, we made that independently. Okay, so you didn't record My Private Train for Phonogram, but they picked it up. They did, yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. We borrowed 20 grand from family and friends. Those days, paid, it's like 100 grand. We paid to use Tim Finn's studio, Periscope, and we used Paul Kosky as producer. The whole production technique that he subjected us to was just antithetical to anything we'd done before but he kind of got on top of us and it really didn't do a lot of healthy things for the band and kind of took our creative strengths out of it which was poisonous in a couple of different ways because it didn't make a record that the people who liked us would have identified with and it kind of made us as i think it's been kind of clear we didn't really like it ourselves and that really made it difficult because we then sold it to phonogram and phonogram wanted to spend a couple of years promoting it and flogging it and we went from being able to kind of live off what we did to having this sort of bastard child that we didn't want that was kind of setting us broke. Was it Paul Kosky's production that you didn't like? Were you dissatisfied with some of the material? What was it that made My Private Train an unpleasant experience for you? His way of recording is like absolute, you know, micromanagement of parts and building a multi-track kind of architecture starting with the drum track Mm -hmm. whereas the following record was much more of a live tracking kind of experience where we'd whack out a bunch of versions and you'd know when you were starting to middle it when you were starting to middle it you'd do a couple of full takes with a conscious sort of effort to go let's do this one a little more straight on the beat let's do this one a little quicker let's slow it down a bit da 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 and then choose a version and go right we're working from here whereas my private train was in my mind just utterly sterile mind you we got on well with Paul we had no problem with Paul we thought we had a good time making it didn't we Joe if I remember yeah. we had a pretty good time yeah. we all got on really well with Paul and we were frogs in hot water is what we were yeah. hmm. and we didn't you know we'd all, all along we'd always stuck to our guns we knew what we were doing and then we we finally let someone convince us, not convince us, but we sort of got led down a pathway where we weren't in control of it, and it was the wrong way to go. Yeah, totally. The difference between My Private Train, which is like quantized to the millionth of a beat, versus... Talking in your sleep. Or ice, but, oh, yeah, talking in your sleep, which is like a bunch of drunk people. Before, that's cap- the directly before it. Yeah, whereas Ice Bait Gas was very much capture the band. I was going to get to that. It sounds like Talking in Your Sleep was recorded over three years, presumably like, okay, we've got some money, let's go in and record a few songs. And they're all brilliant songs, but from a listening experience, it says, right, that's not from the same recording session as that one. That sounds vastly different. And My Private Train may be a little bit of a high production sheen on some of them, but to my ears, I'm listening as an objective listener. I still like. I do want to come back to my private train, a couple of songs, but just I remember reading a review years ago of the second album by Dave Steele, Angels Never Cry. And the guy who wrote the review had said that his previous solo album, Bitter Street, sounded really very muddied. And the expression he used to compare Angels Never Cry with Bitter Street was that it sounded like Graham Bidstrup, who produced that second album, 
someone had gone and put a ferret down his pants. And, <laughs> and, and that's what came up with this incredibly exciting live sound of that second album. And I would argue that maybe someone had put a ferret down Joe Camilleri's pants. And that's what got him all jumpy and excited to record that third album. With I, I do want to come back to that. I, I just want to go a little bit of order. My Private Train, you've gone through what made it an unpleasant experience, but really, and I know you said you were sick of head over heels, but I think that as anyone's going and claiming, oh, we want to hear Kaysan, we want to hear, am I ever going to see your face again? But I'd say that no respectable list of brilliant Australian songs could afford to exclude songs like Head Over Heels or Bernie. I like the production of Head Over Heels. I think Head Over Heels, you kind of got right. I think Head Over Heels... I know it's got a lot of my backing vocals on it, but uh, it's not too far removed from what we do, and I think it's – I like the recording of that song. There was a horrible quote, Morris, from the guy from – remember Arnold Frollo's, who was a Triple J programmer, his quote on Head Over Hills was the best song since Sultans of Swing. Oh, fuck. Everyone's going to hate you. Everyone's going to go, well, that's not Sultans of Swing. Oh, I think he was on our side, but, it, you know, it's just, they played – like, that was another that was another fuck-up, wasn't it, James? Because we lost it first as an independent record, and, and Triple J played Head Over Heels as a single. Single. And then it was picked up by Polygram, and they released Head Over Heels again. I'm wondering why Triple J wasn't playing it again. Well, they need some sort of market research, and out of 20 songs, it scored the lowest with kids under 16. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. I thought it was the most complained about video on video smash hits, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was fucking really unpopular. It was bizarre. I can't believe that. Did you guys not wear flannel shirts or something in the video? No, I had a whole white shirt, I remember. No, I mean, something that I really liked about Head Over Heels, it sort of sounded to me like a, a sequel of sorts to Stuck in Melbourne or maybe a role reversal to uh, Paul Kelly's To Her Door. You know, it's a song that isn't about love being perfect or being there for always or even being logical but it acknowledges that yearning is for real even when it's problematic was this your real life james or once again you're just brilliant at being able to pick up on what you see around you or what you might have read in a short story or something that's very perceptive on your part morris daniel's champion at keeping a relationship going i've met a few rocky shores but despite my personal life i suppose i'm kind of interested or fixated with redemption i guess Mm. redemption and fixing things too. Yeah, I love the song, just not that version that's recorded. There's more than a couple of my songs deal with that ebb and flow. When Bernie came back from the war He married his best friend's girl She was a beauty From outside Gerildery The day Frank had met his destiny Bernie said he'd keep an eye on her when Bernie arrived on the key. Dan, you went and re-recorded Bernie for uh, the Night Parrots album, and you really decide, well, if I'm going to re-record it, I'm going to give it a different treatment. Yeah. It's more acoustic, it's more laid back. Does the music on the Night Parrots version tell the story better than what you had on the My Private Train version? Because that's that's far more bouncy. Was bouncy not what you wanted to begin with? The, the main point for me is that you can't sing it like that. You can't sing it with any emotion when it's a pop song because it's just not right. Melodically, it's not that great as a song. You know, like it's, it's lyrically strong, 
is not that strong. So if you want to sing it well, you've got to sing it. It's got to be almost spoken. It just didn't work. I mean, I guess what Koski was trying to do. I mean, he thought it was a good song, but that treatment to me just—you just can't. I just can't find the emotion in it. Particularly, I couldn't sing it right, you know. I just that's to me that's the main thing. I couldn't, yeah. I think my I think my range. I think I'm a better singer now too. So that's probably that's not Paul's fault either. I think by the time I sing it on with Marcel, I, I I'm a better singer. But yeah, I think it's just a it's a story song. You know, that's you know you talk about songs that I've worked. I I, dra- I reckon I drafted fucking. 36 verses for that song because <laughs> I was just trying to compress it into a it's such a, a long story and I, you know the, the, the trick in that song is that the choruses aren't the same that's why it's really hard to fucking remember because the choruses are all different but the choruses move along the story so that's the only solution I found for it but rather than having all those verses the my private trailer I just sound it just sounds pretty monotone honestly I'm being honest as a songwriter I think it's yeah lyrically strong because it's it's the lyrics are they, they do get to the essential nub of the guy. Yeah, I think I think it got a bit exposed. I think Koski exposed its musical weaknesses by <laughs> when we do it live. Like it's hard to do it with the Warner Brothers because if you don't play it with different feels all the way through it, it just this gets lost because it's not a great melody. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Yeah, well, it's it's true. You know, I write much better melodies now, but uh, it's but I think lyrically it's fine. You know, and I, I like singing it, but it's, you can only sing it when people can hear the lyrics. You know, and in a pop song, people aren't really listening with the lyrics. So coming back, I, I asked you this a few minutes ago, and I think we got sidestepped, but I think it's still fairly important for the people who live outside of Melbourne and don't know the story. So what happened with Time Warner? At what point did they sort of say, hang on, who's this band calling themselves the Warner Brothers and why are they using our name? What actually happened? My suspicion is that those sort of companies have legal companies on the ticket and one of their lawyers was based in Melbourne or heard our single on Triple J and went hang on it's a way for me to raise my profile a little bit that's what I reckon happened by protecting the copyright yeah by protecting the copyright of the name of Time Warner yeah. and so our initial advice was from uh, Owen Trembath Sydney an entertainment lawyer and he said fuck him he said, unless you make money in the States, they can't touch you. And essentially, he was right. My dad was a lawyer. And when it happened, he said to me, um, said, change your name, James. And I, I said, look, no. I said, it's, A, it's great publicity for us. We've spent years under this name, got a good name. And I said, you know, it's worth pushing on with it. And he said, well, the words rang true for years. The old man said, well, you will have to eventually. I'll come up with something, you know. So I'd, if I was you, I'd change it. We went along. Owen just said, don't, just, just go with it. They can't do anything. And unless you make money in the States where they have the um, passing off laws. Here, they need to prove that you are attempting to impersonate them. Whereas in the States, if you use the same name, they can just say, that's ours, prove otherwise. And so we continued onwards. And then we eventually got a letter from them. Owen rang us up and he said, change your name now. (laughs) So what's the go? He said, well, they've threatened to lodge an ambit claim against your income. So what does that mean? He said, well, what it means is they'll say, this money was made under the Warner Brothers and we're the Warner Brothers, that's ours, prove otherwise. And I said, said, but how likely is that? And he said, well, first thing that'll happen is the tax department will know about it and they'll come after you right 
So at that point, we changed our name. I don't know if either of you gents have read this book called The Groucho Letters. It's <laughs> We know the Groucho letter, believe me. Okay. All right. So the Warner Brothers had gone and sent them a note saying, you can't call your film a night in Casablanca. And he went and wrote back to them saying, what, do you hold the copyright for the for the word brothers as, as well? We were brothers before you were brothers. <laughs> So, yeah, it seems like a very litigious company. Well, was also, I would also say to us, look, you've got a new record coming out. You should just change it before you release a new record in case they do hold you up because it's crazy. You know, if they might delay the release of the record. And, and so you should just do it. Just make a clean break with the new record. So that kind of made sense. That made kind of sense, didn't it, James? Yeah. So what we did was release the EP under the name Overnight Jones and called it Not Brothers Anymore. Right. The EP got the airplay from Triple J. So... Two quick little stories. When we released the first album, we did it at the uh, ESPY, and I went away for two weeks. We had no- nothing booked for nearly a month, I think, and I figured I could do anything we needed to do on the phone. So um, I went up north for two weeks, and um, on the way home, ended up in Sydney, and some friends had a place, an old bloke who used to go up north every winter. They were staying at this uh, fantastic flat right on the cliff at um, South Bondi. And we turned up, we're sitting on the couch, and there's a couple of his mates that are there, and um, the ones, you know, we're talking, and he goes, all right, you're in a band. And I said, yeah, 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 um, called the Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah, what sort of stuff? I said, oh, we just, you know, put out a record. And I went, oh, hang on, that's us. We were on the radio. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I remember this room with sort of six or eight people, mate. They all, so all just turned and looked at the radio and went, fuck. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah. And then we went away shortly after that. And then I got back to Melbourne and picked my brother up from the airport. And he's, you know, so blah, blah. So how's it all um, how's it all going? You know, like the record and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're just getting to my place. And I said, well, fuck, we're getting, you know, airplay. And he goes, he's like, you know, kind of wide eyed. You know, it's my big brother. He's always, you know, just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And as we're pulling up in front of my house, Stuck in Melbourne came on the radio. Him just looking at me stunned. And me just thinking, yeah, yeah, we're, we're on the way. Before we leave my private train, Morris, what phonogram we're trying to do, we're trying to cross us over from the, that country, alt country thing we were doing, Americana, be a mainstream band for them, a mainstream rock band. That's what they were trying to do. Head over heels with a single. We were in Perth. I remember, I'm from Perth, and I remember the same sort of thing. And they said, oh, look, look, they've served it to Triple M. So I had Triple M on. I would never, you know, we had Triple M on the, in the Tarago, whatever it was. And I'm sitting in High Street, Perth, and, and Head Over Heels comes on Triple M Perth. And I'm thinking, sheesh, this is commercial radio. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in my, home, my old hometown going, well, it's not Triple J, this is Triple M. And this is how close we got. Triple M tested it in Perth and Brisbane, but not Melbourne and Sydney. And when Perth and Brisbane didn't get any reaction, they didn't. They never got played in, in Melbourne or Sydney. That was really the, the closest we got to commercial success. Do you know where bands like The Stems played on commercial radio in Perth? They were hometown boys. That's probably a similar story to us, The Stems, I'd say. Together anymore Now the time has come to leave and Who knows what you're leaving for Is this a note made of that you bought to make me show my hand these lost few pockets of privacy things that you never understand All right, well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Ice Bake Gas, the third, the final full-length player. So we've already gone and spoken about, you know, things were 
little bit difficult, at least with the way how you were used to working, working with Paul Kosky. So you were back recording for yourselves by the time you get to Iceback Guest, but you recorded the album in what was then the very new studio for Joe Camilleri, Woodstock Studios in St Kilda. I want to know what your recollections are of working with him on that album. Was Joe a very supportive producer? I mean, you'd already gone and said, I think, James, that you played live and then you'd sort of say, right, okay, this is the way how we want it to sound. We're going to do future takes based on this sound or this yeah. rendition yeah. of it. What are your recollections of working with Joe Camilleri? Joe is a rock and roll guy. His taste shouldn't be entirely based on the music you hear him make, but he's a, an adept musician, but he's a big fan of just rock and roll. So, big guitar collection. It was a kind of a, a big breath of fresh air for us to work with him because he's just really into music, not trying to be someone who was a hit factory, and so that was a real breath of fresh air for us. But we'd also had the Barney with the record company about recording at all because we paid for and recorded uh, my program on our own and sold it to them when they signed us up for a record deal we said we weren't going to sign unless they gave us another guaranteed budget for an album which kind of contravened what they'd normally do because they would never give people like referred to as two albums you get an album with an agreed budget and then options rolling over after that. But the contract that we signed, they bought My Private Train and they had an agreed budget for a second album. And so, of course, the relationship went to shit before we'd even started pre-production for the second record. And it got to the point where we sort of basically had to force them to agree to give us money to do stuff. We made a tape down at Point Lonsdale, demo, sort of pre-production demos, a bunch of songs, and... Um, and they were like, yeah, whatevs. Daniel gave it to Paul Hester. Paul Hester had a cafe with Joe Camilleri, and Joe Camilleri's daughter, Nat, was kind of a fan of the band and used to come and see us a bit. She was working in the cafe. Hester has the tape, plays it. She pounces on it, plays it regularly at the cafe. And we had negotiations going on with Hester and his manager to produce an album for us. And for some reason, that just turned into a fucking complete shit fight. Anyway, Joe got in touch with us and he goes, so I hear it's all gone to shit with Hester. Um, I love that tape. You want to make a record? Not being too proud or uh, too appraised of what had been going on anyway. We just went, yep, that'd be great. So that's how we ended up at Woodstock. We hit it off with Joe immediately. He got the songs. The songs he wanted to record out of the 20 that we had on the tape or whatever it was were almost exactly the ones that we wanted to do. Joe loves a good song, appreciates a bit of kooky rock and roll stuff as opposed to intricate studio professionalism. But on top of that, he wanted to use Mick Letho uh, as engineer, and Mick was just completely incredible. He was just fantastic. So it was it was a great environment, and with Mick Letho's skill, I just reckon that that album is the band. I mean, it wasn't the last thing that you guys recorded, but certainly if you're going to sort of like look at those albums as a trilogy, that's sonically a, a wonderful way to finish off. I sort of wanted to just ask about a couple of the songs that big, big favourites for me. I mean, I've already gone and mentioned Red Hat. Rainbow Suit is a song that I reckon, Dan, you should have sent to Don Walker to record. I won 50 grand on the Greyhounds last night Gonna buy me a rainbow suit I Take a tram ride along the Esplanade I get a load of my bag of fruit Gonna ride the roller coaster down from heaven to hell The boys will see my rainbow from the bar of the bell Rain fell down, the sun came out Shining on my rainbow suit 
it's got that bluesy Latin feel and it's you know, a tale of what you're going to do after winning at the track. That's the sort of thing that Don Walker absolutely loves. I'd just love to hear the suave fucks record a version and fill your bank account. What do you recall about writing that song? Because I used to drink a lot in St Kilda, being a St Kilda person. I used to drink at the old uh, Village Bell bar. That's literally a quote from a bloke who walked up to me and said exact, that exactly that first line. I've just won, you just say 50 grand. I said, oh, I just won 10 grand on a fucking, on the dish liquors. I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do, mate? I'm going to go and buy a rainbow suit. <laughs> And that's just one of those lines. I thought, oh, fuck, I've got to write that down. And the rest of it's sort of off the back of that, you know, imagining that character. If he would have said, I'm going to go out and buy me a nudie suit, would it have been a country song? <laughs> no, it wouldn't have been the same. But rainbow suits are quite a good image. Funnily enough, that song, after the band broke up, because Hester, I, I knew Hester pretty well, and he asked me to play on the Mick Malloy show. This, this is, you probably don't know this, but... Mick Malloy had a show on Channel 9. I remember it. It was canned. Hester had the house band there. They would have a guest musician at the end of every episode. And I played Rainbow Soup on the Mick Malloy show with his band, with Hester and his band, and after that, I, he asked me to join his band. He loved that song too. I actually like it more now than I did then. You know, it's another one of those true story songs, I guess. <laughs> Once again, it's both of you, gents, your power of observation. That's it, It's honest, it's real, and uh, I guess it's something that draws me into it. That and the late night sleazy vibe to it and Ian Kitney that's Kitney and Joe you know really isn't it James they were pretty yeah. much produced it yeah I got a really good mate who I do another podcast with my partner in, in podcasting crime Tim Merrill and Ian's drumming Tim would describe it as he beats those drums like they owed him money <laughs> <laughs> a little bit also like uh, Ashley Davies. He's another one of those drummers who combines really hard hitting with finesse. He's my current drummer. Oh, right. Yes, yes. I saw that for the latest Night Parrots album. Kidney's a James discovery. Stewie discovered, well, yeah, from the Walker Connection, James. A friend said, let's go and see this band at the Mac. You love the drummer. And I'm like, I fucking like drummers. The Mac's in Wagga, by the way. Wagga, Wagga. And I remember seeing this guy and just spending the whole gig watching him because he just he played the lyrics on the drums. Carl Panizzo left the Warner Brothers immediately after we uh, released the first album. And Daniel rang me up and he was kind of ticked off and, and a bit freaked out. I said, it's okay. I said, best drummer I've ever seen has just moved to Melbourne and he needs a job. And I remember Daniel's like, right. <laughs> but um, I want to say, Ian hits those drums like, you know, they are in money. He's incredibly loud. It's all in his wrists. Ian has the most amazing wrists, and it's all the t his timing. He's just yeah, he's an incredible drummer. It's all in the wrist action. As I said, a combination of hard and soft, the thumping, but he has finesse, and that's the wrist part. This is probably reiterating a point that I made earlier, but I sort of wanted to expand a little bit about on it because three songs on the album that, and I guess this is a common theme across all your albums about relationships that have gone south so one song that i already mentioned earlier on big as a moon has that tale of implied domestic violence at least as i read it 15 bucks a week post-divorce the heartache of not knowing your child i live both in and out of town i live on both sides of the border i got a wife who never wants my back i got an 80 month old daughter Who's only heard bad things of me She's still too young to speak She'll hate but never meet me I send them 15 bucks a week 
How is that song not a hit? Well, exactly. Well, look, I mean, think about it. Father's Day was a big hit by Weddings, Parties, Anything, and you're covering similar territory. If you look really closely at the lyrics in uh, 15 Bucks a Week, yeah. you might find a mention of that song you were talking about. Coincidence? No. I think not. <laughs> <laughs> and the other relationship gone south song, this beautiful use of dynamic, is Blind. Oh, Blind. I thought you were going to say Autumn Days. No, well, yeah, okay, you could call Autumn Days as well. It'd be a quadrilogy. Blind is another song that hits you, and once again, it's Ian's drumming on that, which just, when it's time to ramp it up, you know, we start off with the organ and everything's sort of like laid back. Between his drumming and your singing on that, Dan, you really ramp it up. You were saying before that you weren't so confident as a singer at that, that time. I listen to that song and I think, hang on, you tell me a porky pie. <laughs> you you sound extremely confident. No, it was great for me as a, you know, he was a great producer. He, he was great at giving all of us a bit of confidence, I think. He was just, I think James sort of hit the nail on the head. He was like a musician. He was like, he was like a member of the band. Like he played a lot, he played a lot of organ on the, on the record. He just sort of got into the pro, just, just sort of got along with us. And he was really excited. He was excited by the songs and yeah, he was kind of infectious and he, he could get good performances out of you. I remember him saying to me stuff like, you know, you're singing the wrong keys. You know, the keys are wrong for you. You're singing, the keys are too high. And that, that was really good advice for a long time until my voice got better, you know. He was a real mentor. So he was a musical producer, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, but gently, he wasn't critical at all. He was just really encouraging. And, and, you know, music for me is like when you're feeling confident, you can do anything. So overall, a positive recording experience. But how much longer did the band stay together post Ice Bait Gas being recorded? Not long. We're talking like half a year or something like that? For me, I thought Ice Bait Gas, people would like it. I thought we'd get some airplay. We got no airplay for it. We got nothing. It was just so disappointing because we thought, as James said, that's the record that really represents it's the band, I reckon. I think I said on my website, it's, it's me singing James Stewart songs, the best I can. Or the be- and, and he write, was writing some beautiful songs at the time. And it's, I think when we got no recognition or we got kind of lukewarm reviews and no airplay, it's like, Jesus, what do you have to do, you know? I remember pranking the Triple J phone system. Apart from the usual one of just changing around a few of the last few numbers and asking to get back put back through to someone. But I um, just rang Triple J, added, changed a couple of numbers. Someone answered the phone. I said, sorry, I just got cut off from Arnold Frollo's. Is there any way you can put me through? <laughs> Arnold picks up the phone. Frollo's. I said, um, Arnold, James Stewart from uh, Overnight Jones. <laughs> And he, you could hear him sort of exhale. He goes, here you go, James. So good, Arnold. Just um, trying to ring you up and trying to squeeze a bit of airplay out of him. He goes, James, we're looking for the great Australian single. And I said, it's on the album. It's on the album, Silver HQ. And he goes, I'll give it a listen. Okay, see ya. And that was it. Triple J never played us after. They played two songs. They played Stuck in Melbourne, Head Over Heels, and Nothing Ever Again. But we're sort of caught between. You know, that's always been our problem. We're sort of caught between that, you know, like Triple M, you know, they, they weren't going to play us. So who's gonna, if they're not playing us, who's going to play us, you know? Well, so do you guys think that perhaps you were there at the wrong time? I mean, you're in the wrong era. I've always said for years that if the Ice Cream Hands had been recording in the 70s, that had been as big as any other band on the planet, or at least as big 
as any band in Australia. Were you just around at the wrong time? Do you think 3XY would have picked you up if you'd been around in the 70s? I don't reckon. I can only answer that. I reckon our stuff is just not, well, it's not mainstream. We're like Big Star or we're like, we're like one of those bands. Like when I hear those bands or Uncle Tupelo, or, you know, I hear those, like, Whiskey Town or We Are Real Old Country. It's kind of lo-fi and it's lyrical, but it's just not Nashville and it's not rock. So it's, no one's ever going to play us in any era. I'm not sure we'd had someone with a better public persona. We're good at better at it now, but back then I was not deliberately confrontational, but we stuck pretty closely. You know, we stuck to what we wanted to do. And it was kind of, I guess, to me, if not anyone else, almost a sport to be kind of defensive about it. In hindsight, I have utterly no regrets about anything we did or how we achieved it. But I reckon if we'd changed a few things or focused on what was popular, we probably could have got further, but we wouldn't be having this chat right now. You know what I reckon we should have done, Morris? What's that? And I thought long and hard about this too, because it was the era before the internet. That's the main thing for us. If we'd moved to America in 1992, we would have been fine. There's a big audience to that kind of music that was emerging. You know, Green on Red, we were a bit like them in the 80s, but, like, you know, those bands were sort of, Wicked Town was a bit after us, but, you know, Uncle Tupelo was certainly contemporaries. There's a lot going up there. You know, that sort of old country stuff was, and our, our music's American. Our music is distinctly American music, American-Australian slash music, but... I reckon if we'd done that, but you couldn't do it in those days. You couldn't get on the phone and ring up, you know, you couldn't email someone. You couldn't, you know, it was just a completely different era. Like, if I rang up some American promoter and those in the 80s, go, G'day, I'm Dan from Australia. They're going to go, yeah, click. <laughs> you just couldn't do it. You couldn't pitch yourself as easily. But, of course, in the internet era, in some ways it's a lot more difficult because there's an ocean of so many bands, but at least you, if you can find a, a, a way to promote yourself a little bit, it's, it's easier to be heard and you possibly don't need the triple J's of the world anymore. The other thing is, here's the scoop for you. We're recording, we're recording another record with Joe Camilleri. Oh, here. magnificent. And uh, who knows? You know, Someone's made a documentary about the band. Really? Who's done that? It's an ABC person I know. is making a documentary about the band, so we're not going anywhere. <laughs> Are we, James? No. Well, thank fuck for that, because... <laughs> Okay, so my question, I was sort of going to end this with thinking, right, well, you know, you do the annual get-togethers. This time around, you did a whole month worth at the Gasometer Hotel in Collingwood. But, you know, up until that, pretty much you've sort of been doing, you know, like all the, the millions of other projects that you've been doing, Dan, and the Warner Brothers seems to be just the annual thing. And I was sort of going to ask, because you're only doing it that to a limited extent, you've reverted back to the name the Warner Brothers, presumably weren't concerned about the company coming after you. If you're recording a new album, Mm. You're worried about them coming back after? I'm not. I hope they do. It'll be a Warner Brothers release. They can come after us. Because the original legal advice stands, mm. Yeah, essentially. And on the you know, grounds of probability of how much money we'll make in the States, well, we can kiss that goodbye. What actually happened was when we made Ice Bay Gas, Jim Carden had been in back in Melbourne for a bit. And we thought, you know, we ought to play with Jim. And do a couple of little pub gigs, just play that bit of old rockabilly stuff, play a couple of the old songs. So we've actually been playing as the Warner Brothers for over 20 years, here and there. At one point, I think there might have been a 10-year break and there was a wedding. We were all there. At one point, there might have been a 10-year break. <laughs> You know, I think it, was, it might have been seven years, I think it was, in total. We played together, and it was like bizarre magic. So kind of ever since then, it's been at the absolute least annual, but the whole calling it the Warner Brothers again was kind of like just going, you know, we stepped up to do the right thing, but this is what we are. 
Well, see, nowadays you can start a crowdfunding thing for your legal appeal. Didn't have that in the 90s. If they haven't pursued the case now, I, I know legally we're fine because if they didn't pursue it then, then, and we've been, as James said, we've been playing under that name for 20 years, they can't suddenly come after us. They just can't do it. They need to pursue it back then. Who's the rhythm section nowadays? Well, Nathan Farrelly's been playing bass with us for, geez, how long, James? Like 10 years? No, not that long, but, you know, we've been involved in various kind of blurred projects, but I reckon eight, maybe? Nathan's my bass player, plays with Marcel Terry McCann, he plays a lot of bands, but he's sort of in that in our world. He was on, and he did Warner Corner for years. Right. Yes. Okay. He's sort of part of the family. We haven't played with Malcolm since the band broke up. Really. So who's behind the kit nowadays? Original drummer James Carden. So oh wow. Okay. James Carden was our original drummer. Yes. So it's just, yeah, three original members, and Nathan just slots right in, doesn't he, James? Nathan's a um, top-level bass player. He sits in occasion with the T-Bones that I play with, and last year, because she was uh, stuck overseas because of the COVID stuff, sat in with Fort Royal Shipbox, my um, original outfit too. So, yeah, no, he's just incredible and a great singer too. And he's, he's in the Night Parrots. He's been in the Night Parrots from day one. I guess final thing I have to ask for any of the people who are listening to this who are thinking the albums themselves have been out of print on physical media for years. Is there any plan to either repress or put them as downloads on Bandcamp so people can grab them again? A new generation of uh, listeners can listen? Sort of holding back until the doco comes out. When the doco comes out, everything will be available. And when's that looking likely? Is that going to be this year? I think it'll be next year. All right, well, gents, I hope you've enjoyed this even a fraction as much as I have. This has been just a wonderful conversation. Really just enjoyed talking about your creative process and all the hijinks that you guys seem to have gone through over the years. And yeah, just really great to get some concentrated time to uh, have a chat. Thank you so much. Really wish you both a lot of future success for you know both for the Warner Brothers and for the new Night Parrots album and I don't know if you're recording something else on the side James right now but just yeah wish you all best of success Melbourne needs to get the music scene back up and running again post-COVID and I, I reckon the Melbourne needs more Warner Brothers gigs than ever thanks boys thanks thanks for uh, having us it was uh, you know fantastic and yeah look just we love telling the stories so. that is evident alright thanks so much much chance okay we'll be back in a moment you'll listen to episode 145 of My gratitude goes out to James and Dan for their time and those brilliant tales that they told me. As I said, the Warner Brothers and Overnight Jones back catalogue should get re-released sometime in the next year in anticipation of the documentary and the new album they're recording. Their first in about 25 years, I think. So next month, I have another interview lined up. 30 years ago, saw the release of what is, at least for me, a revered debut album from Sydney band Clouds. Not THE Clouds, although I believe they're no longer rejecting that. I struggle to believe that that album, Penny Century, is 30 years old. 
one of the two songwriters and lead singers is Jodie Phyllis. She made a number of really great solo albums in recent years that are very different to the sound of her work with Clouds. Her latest album is being released very shortly through the Sound As Ever label, and Jodie will be joining me to talk about that album as well as her previous work. And don't worry, we'll definitely be giving some time to Clouds and to Penny Century as well. I mean, how couldn't we? I'm really, really looking forward to having her on the show. So until next month, please continue to listen to some great music. I hope you're fortunate enough to be able to attend a live show. Spread the word if you can about Love That Album. We're approaching the 10-year anniversary of the program, and I do have something special planned. Keep an ear out for that. Uh, Look after one another. Please be nice. If you're thinking about spreading some vitriol on social media, why bother? Spread messages of someone nice you encountered or something that you're proud that you achieved. Look after yourselves. All the best. Cheers. Thinking he could just run somewhere else. He thought about the suitcase in the broken down old EJ over there. He was stuck there in Melbourne again. He burned those breaches to his baby. She was looking for a new boyfriend. He had a pain in his heart. He had to make a brand new start. On the dashboard was a hairbrush. Held the pieces of his baby's long back It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.